eternity's too short to utter all thy praise. What an amazing thought that is to consider. And uh, it's hard for us even to fathom because we uh, cannot even imagine what eternity even feels like, uh, much less looks like. And uh, what, what a great reminder in, in song tonight. Well, I'm turning to Matthew chapter 9 this evening. Matthew chapter 9, verses 27 through 34. Matthew chapter 9, verses 27 through 34. And we'll be dealing uh, with the subject this evening of have mercy on us. Have mercy on us. Beginning there in verse 27, let's read our text and then uh, we'll get into the message this evening. And when Jesus departed thence, two blind men followed him, crying and saying, Thou son of David, have mercy on us. And when he was come into the house, the blind men came to him. And Jesus saith unto them, Believe ye that I am able to do this? They said unto him, Yea, Lord. Then touched he their eyes, saying, According to your faith, be it unto you. And their eyes were opened, and Jesus straightly charged them, saying, See that no man know it. But they, when they were departed, spread abroad his fame in all that country. As they went out, behold, they brought to him a dumb man possessed with a devil. And when the devil was cast out, the dumb spake, and the multitudes marveled, saying, It was never so seen in Israel. But the Pharisees said, He casteth out devils through the prince of the devils. In our text, Matthew continues to give illustration and a narrative regarding the healing power of Jesus Christ. As chapter 9 continues to unfold, we now see two blind men who uh, come to Jesus, and we see a man who is also mute because of a demon possession. Both of these incidents, both of these events, are very much instructive as to who Jesus is and who Jesus was. Now we saw last week how Jesus had been to the house of Jairus and he had also raised uh, his daughter from death. And Matthew here tells us there in verse 27, when Jesus departed from there, that's where he's leaving, he's leaving from the house of Jairus, two blind men followed him or two blind men came following after him, crying and saying, Thou son of David, have mercy on us. Now, we did see in the previous uh, text, uh, we did see how this woman who was uh, diseased with this issue of blood had uh, come from behind Jesus and simply wanted to touch the hem of his garment. Uh, And she uh, does that, and she does that in faith. She does that with the belief that Jesus could certainly uh, heal this condition that had not been successfully treated or healed in over 12 years. And you notice that her approach to Jesus was a a little bit more hidden. It was more uh, behind the scenes. She didn't outwardly demonstrate that she was there for a purpose. These two blind men are not... Um, shy in showing their boldness in coming to Jesus. It tells us that they followed him crying and saying, Thou son of David, have mercy on us. Uh, These men approached him very boldly. Uh, They were very straightforward. 
And you can see that they are crying out for help. Uh, Now, there's no doubt that they certainly had heard about the raising of this daughter. Uh, There's no doubt they had heard that she was on her deathbed and word had probably spread very, very quickly that to many they believe she was probably already dead. And so they knew that this Jesus had the ability and had the and prayerfully would have the willingness uh, to make them see. And so, just like Jairus had, Jairus had done, and the woman with the issue of blood, uh, we see people who are in great desperation. There are people who are greatly in need, and there are people who are seeking for help. Uh, now, you and I, oftentimes, when we see these events with people who are dealing with issues, uh, oftentimes, one of the ones that always stands out the most to me, and I think it's because of the spiritual applications, are those that are blind. Uh, Those that are blind because there is this spiritual application that before we're even saved, that we're blind to our own sin, we're blind to our own need. So these healings of of the individuals that are blind uh, always tend to stand out. Uh, if, you, if you've ever been around uh, people who have not been able to see, and especially in the case they've never been able to see in their entire life, uh, it, is, it is quite remarkable uh, to watch and to, and to think about just how dangerous life really is for them. Uh, with every step, with every movement, to, to not be able to see what you're doing, where you're going, and just to, to, to have to, to feel around in the darkness. Uh, these individuals... Uh, certainly were at a great risk. Now, we do know that in the Old Testament, uh, we do see uh, certain miracles. Uh, We see times when there are some miracles performed. But for the most part, and I think I'm accurate in saying this, and again, every time I say there's not one instance of something, somebody will say, hey, I know of one. But from what I'm aware of, uh, there is not a single instance when a blind person receives their sight by the virtue of a miracle in the Old Testament. Now, is there a reason for that? I'm not sure. Uh, But I do know that there are prophetic statements, and we're going to look at some of those tonight, that point us that the Messiah himself would be able to restore sight, and that one of the identifiers of the Messiah would be that he would restore blind eyes. He would bring people to be able to see. So there are these gospel accounts where Jesus heals people who were blind, and it's not just a one-time event. Uh, Now, there are times when there's a question about uh, not physical blindness, but are we seeing the right thing? And here's what I mean by that. If you'll turn over to Matthew chapter 11, we'll get to this uh, text in a number of weeks. But this isn't about a blind man, but this is a person who's asking a question. Um, Are we looking at the right person? Are we looking in the right direction? Matthew 11, beginning in verse 1, it says, And it came to pass, when Jesus had made an end of commanding his twelve disciples, he departed thence to teach and to preach in their cities. Now when John had heard in the prison the works of Christ, he sent two of his disciples and said unto him, Art thou he that should come, or do we look for another? Jesus answered and said unto them, Go and show John again those things which ye do hear and see. The blind receive their sight, and the lame walk, the lepers are cleansed, and the deaf hear. The dead are raised up, and the poor have the gospel preached to them. So, 
on that occasion, here's John the Baptist having some doubt at least of who Jesus is. He really the Lamb of God. He sends his disciples to ask Jesus, are you the person we are to be looking for? Are you the one? And Jesus responds by confirming that he is by giving the indication that one of the things that Jesus as the Messiah, as the Lamb of God would do is that he would restore sight to the blind, that he would make the lame to walk. He would cure and cleanse the lepers. He would make the deaf hear, and he would also be able to raise the dead. Now you realize all of those miracles, all of those things Jesus himself did perform. And those miracles were indications to confirm that Jesus Christ is the one they should be looking for. Now we might ask the question, well how does this apply uh, to these two blind men? Because these particular deeds, these particular miracles, these were signs that were prophesied by the prophet Isaiah that you would know the Messiah and his ministry by his ability to restore sight, his ability to restore speech, to restore hearing, to make the lame walk, to cleanse people from sin. Uh, This is how you would know. So let's go back to Isaiah 29. Before we even get into our exposition of Matthew, let's go back to Isaiah 29 and look at this prophecy because this tells us uh, exactly uh, who people should look for. And that's why this is important about these two blind men and why they were so bold in following after Christ. Isaiah 29, look at verse number... uh, Let's look at uh, verse 16. It says, Surely your turning of things upside down shall be esteemed as the potter's clay. For shall the work say of him that made it, he made me not? Or shall the thing framed say of him that framed it, he had no understanding? Is it not yet a very little while, and Lebanon shall be turned into a fruitful field, and the fruitful field shall be esteemed as a forest? And in that day shall the deaf hear the words of the book, And the eyes of the blind shall see out of obscurity and out of darkness. Now go over just a few chapters over to Isaiah 35 and look at verses 4 through 6. Again, remember Isaiah, most of his prophecies were concerning the coming Messiah. That's why we're going to Isaiah before we even get into the the looking at at the text in Matthew. Verse 4 of Isaiah 35. Say to them that are of a fearful heart, be strong, fear not. Behold, your God will come with vengeance, even God with a recompense. He will come and save you. Then the eyes of the blind shall be opened and the ears of the deaf shall be unstopped. Then shall the lame man leap as a heart and the tongue of the dumb sing. For in the wilderness shall waters break out and streams in the desert." So the Messiah was prophesied as one of the marks, one of the ways you would know who the Messiah was, is he would be able to restore sight to the blind. He would be able to restore sight to the blind. That was one of the first signs would be that ability to give sight. Now clearly, Matthew, as he's writing, and he writes, of course, under the inspiration of the Holy Spirit, This particular event of healing these two blind men 
is given to us as a true testimony to who Jesus Christ was and who Jesus Christ is. Now, let's go back and look at not only how they followed, but let's look at the specifics of what they said. Because it's here is where we really begin to understand that these blind men had some understanding or at least some knowledge more than just hearing the account of the daughter being raised by the terminology that they use. So notice what the blind men cry. They don't just say, have mercy on us. It's the phrase before that. Thou son of David, have mercy on us. So we really need to highlight two aspects of this. The first thing we need to notice is what they are requesting or what they are asking for. They are asking for mercy. Now, this is not asking for mercy in the sense of saying, uh, I, I need mercy from uh, some sort of injustice or I need mercy from, from, from something that's being done wrong to me. This is actually the word reflecting pity. In other words, this word is have pity on us. Take notice of our condition. Take notice of the fact that we're blind. Not give us an unjust outcome, but have pity on us. So we could translate it, son of David, have pity on us. But notice son of David. Son of David, please, we beg of you, have compassion on our condition. And it's the son of David that really sets off what's happening here. Now in Matthew 8 and the beginning parts of Matthew 9, Jesus is addressed in various different ways. In Matthew 8, verse number 2, he's referred to as Lord. In Matthew 8, 29, he's referred to as the Son of God. In Matthew 9, verse 6, he called himself the Son of Man. But this is the first time in the, in the account of Matthew's Gospel when he is called the son of David. Now that title is more than just a simple recognition that Jesus was a descendant out of the line of David. Now if we just stop there, we think, okay, he's just telling us he's out of the line of David, we got it. It goes deeper than that. The significance of why David's being mentioned cannot be overlooked. Now, for most of us, I'm going to make an assumption that we, a lot of us know uh, the history of who David is. Uh, but we also know that David, of course, is considered to be, of all the kings in Israel's history, David's considered to be uh, the greatest of those kings. We do know that throughout time, as David was leading, uh, Israel was very prosperous. Israel was going through a time when uh, they were experiencing uh, great things. We see David as a soldier. We see him as a, 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 a conqueror. He, he conquers Israel's enemies. He extends boundaries. Uh, we see David accomplishing great things. We read in the Psalms and we read in, about David even being a, uh, a, a musician in a sense. And even when we look uh, in, in Samuel and how he played music with his hands. He was a very talented man. And of course, David is the author of the majority of the Psalms. 
But more importantly than actually who David is or who David was, was that the promise was that a king whose kingship would never end would come from the line of David. Now to see that, we'll go back to one, one text again back in Isaiah chapter 9 and verse number 7. This is where we start to put the pieces together of the line of David and why it's significant that they were calling him the son of David. And this was not just some random title. Here's what it says in Isaiah 9, 7. And we'll go back to verse 6. And these are familiar. For unto us a child is born, unto us a son is given, and the government shall be upon his shoulder, and his name shall be called Wonderful, Counselor, the Mighty God, the Everlasting Father, the Prince of Peace. Of the increase of his government and peace there shall be no end. Upon the throne of David and upon his kingdom to order it and to establish it with judgment and with justice from henceforth even forever. The zeal of the Lord of hosts will perform this. So we understand that this king who would come, his kingdom would never end. Well, if you read your Bible, you realize David's kingdom did come to an end. David's kingdom was not an endless kingdom. David's kingdom did end. And we see that Solomon, of course, uh, takes over and there are problems and issues that come as a result of that. But there's the promise that this kingdom of God would never end. We read in the book of Amos... Uh, that God, through that prophet, says that there is coming a day when the tabernacle of David, which will, have, will fall down, will be raised up again and it will be rebuilt. So there is this promise that the throne of David, even though it was going to fall, even though it was going to end, it would be established again. And David would restore the kingdom of God. And yet, this relationship that we see between David and Jesus was very, very unique. It was a relationship that Jesus often spoke of and the Bible David even prophesies about and is a type of who Jesus is. We'd understand that in the New Testament, uh, it declares that Jesus is the son of David. But don't lose sight of the fact that Jesus was also David's Lord. Uh, David, uh, David's Lord was this son of David. It was Jesus. Uh, David, the author in Psalm 110, begins that psalm by saying, The Lord said to my Lord, sit at my right hand till I make your enemies your footstool. David in Psalm 110 is writing about a conversation that takes place between God the Father and God the Son, Yahweh speaking to the one David acknowledged as his son. Psalm 110 is fantastic for what it's actually shown. We're actually going to read Psalm 110 for our call to worship Sunday morning because it's going to tie with our study in Hebrews 7. But what was, what was, what was David talking about there? He, he makes mention that Yahweh... That's the word Lord that's in Psalm 110. Said to my Lord, Adonai. The word Adonai means Lord. So Yahweh is speaking to the one David acknowledged as his Lord. This is a conversation that takes place within the Godhead. This is a conversation that took place in which God the Father said to the Son, Sit at my right hand. 
This is all part of the position in which Jesus is seated. At the right hand, he's in the position of that authority. So what we see here and what a question we have to ask ourselves is do these blind men fully understand everything that we just talked about? Do they fully understand about Psalm 110? Do they know the prophecies of Isaiah that we read in Isaiah 29 and Isaiah 35 and Isaiah 9? Did they recognize all of those things? The son of David, folks, was a messianic title. So when they called him the son of David, they were referring to him by a title that was reserved for the Messiah. So they had to have had some understanding that this was the Messiah. So at the very, very bare minimum, these blind men had to have at least considered him in some way, shape, or form as the Savior by using that title, Son of David. It's significant that Jesus did not say, men, before I do anything, you must call me son of David, right? He doesn't say, before I perform a miracle, refer to me by my messianic title. They do that without him ever addressing them, without him ever saying, here's how you should refer to me. So notice what happens in that that narrative. And when he was come into the house, the blind man came to him. So you can see they were following Jesus. They're crying behind him. Now, son of David, have mercy on us. And he goes into a house and the blind men go into a house behind him. And Jesus saith unto them, believe ye that I am able to do this. They said unto him, yea, Lord. Jesus openly and directly asks them a most important question. He simply says, do you believe that I have the ability to restore your sight? Do you believe I have the ability? Because notice what he says. Believe ye that I am able to do this. Do you understand, do you believe that I can do this? Now again, their response is very telling. They've already used a very significant address by calling him son of David. What is their response to Jesus' direct question? Yea, Lord. Yea, Lord. That same sovereign authority that, G, that, that David talks about in Psalm 110 about the father talking to the son, Yahweh says to Adonai, says, Yea, Lord. Now, Simply, the word Lord throughout Scripture, we also know, has some other meaning. Sometimes throughout Scripture, Lord might be the same thing as if we said, yes, sir. But in this particular context, in this particular account, it does seem to go along with the fact that they're using the term Lord in conjunction with the Son of David. So here is what we're supposing, that if they, if, if, if they understood that Jesus was the Son of David, and if he was, in fact, the son of David, and he was the Lord, if he was the Lord, then he could, in fact, give them sight because that's what the Messiah would be able to do. So at the very least, they had had an acknowledgement. If this man is the Savior, he can restore our sight. 
very significant in what they were saying. Now notice Jesus responds to their answer. Then touched he their eyes, saying, according to your faith, be it unto you. Now we're not told in this account how long these men have been without sight. Sometimes in Scripture we see people have been blind from birth. Sometimes we see they've been blind or they've had their affliction, whatever it is, for a certain number of years. We have no idea how long these people were blind. But for, for it's quite possible that this was the first time they had ever seen light. This is the first time they had ever been able to actually see the surroundings around them. It may have been the very first time they saw the sun, the first time they saw daylight. Can you even think, and again, if you've never been blind, maybe we don't have a right understanding of this. Can you imagine what it had been like to have never been able to see and suddenly now you can see out of those eyes? Can you imagine the joy that must have come to them by now being able to see? Sometimes people who have been blind all of their life, they don't have any point of reference because they've never been able to see. I think I've, I've mentioned uh, uh, our church when I was a very, I still remember this very greatly. We had uh, three blind women that were picked up for church every single week. And all of them were blind from birth. They had never, ever been able to see anything. So from the time they were born, they were completely in the dark. And if you would try to talk to them about their, their idea of what they could see, they could not give you any perspective. They couldn't give you anything because they had no point of reference. So if these two men were in fact blinded for all of their life, can you imagine what it must have been like for them now to see? Matthew tells us, according to your faith, Jesus said to them, according to your faith, be it unto you. And verse 30, and their eyes were opened, and Jesus straightly charged them, saying, see that no man know it. Now, of course, I mentioned a few minutes ago, there is this application where we understand that even with the gospel, our own sin, we're, we're born blind to the things of God. Uh, we don't Uh, We don't have a recognition of even our own depravity. We don't have a recognition of our own sin until our eyes are open to these things. Uh, By our human intellect, our human nature, we can't even see and understand the realm of God. So you go back to those, those three women I was telling you about. They have no perspective of what life even really looks like. Folks, we're the same way spiritually. This, this isn't that before God opened our eyes that we had some kind of a knowledge or some kind of a desire or some kind of a want for God. It wasn't until we were, our blindness was removed <coughs> that we could actually see it. We didn't have perspective. We didn't have any way to say, oh, I remember seeing this. We were blind. It's the same concept that, that we were not just Asleep, we were dead in our trespasses and sins. We had to be given life. So this application here, you know, we often hear people, and, and somebody was telling me this past Sunday about how, <clears throat> how frustrating it is 
to talk to somebody and, and want to, and, and they meant this in the right possible way. You just want to shake them and say, why can't you see the spiritual truths of who Jesus Christ is? Because folks, they are spiritually blind until their eyes are opened so that they can see. The frustration is not because they don't want to do it. It's because they're blinded to it. It would be like shaking the person physically blind and said, why can't you see? Because they have to have their eyes healed to be able to see it. Spiritually speaking, until our eyes are given sight, spiritually speaking, we can't see. When we do see, then we begin to see the beauty of who Christ is. Then we begin to see his majesty. Then we begin to see who he is. That's why it's called a gift. Because now it's the gift of spiritual sight. And we would say to every single person who says, I don't see the things of God. What would we say to them? We would say, cry out to God to give you sight. Pray that God will open your eyes to these truths. Not frustration, which I know it's tempting to do. But we have to remember our own blindness. Now, Jesus does something very interesting that he does on a couple other occasions. But notice how this particular um, interaction with our Lord and this healing ends. Their eyes are opened and Jesus straightly charged them saying, see that no man know it. But they, went, they, when they were departed, spread abroad his fame in all that country. Jesus, we see, had taken them inside of the house, or at least they had followed him in the house. It, which tells us that Jesus was trying to do this healing in a little bit of a private environment. He went into a house. And as he heals them, he tells them, don't go and tell anyone what's happened why does jesus do this he does it a couple of times in the gospels now for most people and most interpretations of this the greatest understanding that jesus as to why he did this is because there was such a misunderstanding of who the messiah was and that the Messiah, it was started to believe in Jewish culture that when the Messiah came, he was going to set up his kingdom and he was going to rule and reign right then. Even the disciples fell into that trap a number of times. When they began to say, is now the time you're going to set up the kingdom? Jesus did not want there to be any further confusion. Jesus knew that the people were looking for somebody to deliver them from the power of Rome right then. That's what the main thought is on that. But also, there were the belief that as, as more people heard what Jesus could do, that more and more people would come just for simply getting healed from their conditions. You realize Jesus never healed a certain, any people just to heal them of their physical ailment. He always did it with a purpose in mind. He always did it with his glory in mind. Not just to give the blind sight, but to give and show his glory. Now Matthew doesn't tell us specifically why he gave that command. But what do we see? The people, the two blind men do exactly opposite of what they're told to do. 
He says, don't let anybody know it. And what are the, what's the first thing they do? They run out and it says that when they were departed, they spread abroad his fame in all that country. Not only did they not heed to Jesus' words, they went out and spread as far as they could what happened to them. As soon as they were able to move away from him, they told everybody they could what Jesus had done. Some commentators have said, you know, we can't fault them for that. They just simply couldn't keep quiet. They had been maybe blind all of their life. But still, the command was, don't tell anybody. Don't let anybody know what's been done. Now, almost as a footnote, you notice that this next healing, and this is very brief, very little detail does Matthew give. But it says, and as they went out, behold, they brought to him a dumb man possessed with a devil. So here's a man who can't speak. Here's a man that is possessed with a demon. And notice in verse 33, and when the devil was cast out, the dumb spake, and the multitudes marveled, saying it was never so seen in Israel. Jesus does this miracle openly and outwardly, and he does it publicly. Matthew's account is so simple. There's a man possessed with a demon, and he can't speak. The next verse, the demon's cast out, and he can speak, and Israel's never, they marvel like they've never marveled before. That's the whole event. And yet, we see that in this case, it was the demon that was keeping the man from being able to speak. As soon as the demon was removed, what was recovered? The man's ability to speak. Just the same way that the blind men had regained their sight, the very same way, by Jesus' power, this man regained the use of his ability to speak just by the power of Jesus himself. But this miracle was done publicly. It was declared, and even the people that saw it, they marveled, saying, we have never seen anything like this in Israel. A fantastic miracle. An unbelievable display of God's mercy. There's this similar note of this feeling of what's happening as people are marveling over Jesus' healing. And this is where the narrative really takes, uh, it, it's going to give us a foreshadowing of something that's getting ready to happen. But as the people are marveling over this, notice the Pharisees now enter into the picture. But the Pharisees said... Now, I've got, that, I've got that phrase marked in my Bible because it's so profound and it's so, it's so telling of the Pharisees, their attitude. It's so telling. I think it's so telling of their unconverted state. Instead of rejoicing in the healing and the casting out of this demon, the Pharisees are going to commit and say the unthinkable. Look what they say. The Pharisees said, He, that's Christ, casteth out devils through the prince of the devils. These Pharisees just ascribed this miracle to Satan. They just committed what the Bible refers to as the unpardonable sin. To call the works of Christ and say that the power behind the works of Christ is actually the works of Satan. People often say, what's the unpardonable sin? It's right there. 
to declare God's works, to declare Christ's work specifically, and ascribe them to the work of the devil, that is the unpardonable sin. People say, I thought murder was the unpardonable sin. I thought adultery is the unpardonable sin. No, the unpardonable sin is ascribing the works of Jesus Christ to Satan. Now, this is foreshadowing because Jesus is going to deal with this in a much greater detail the further we get. But that issue is going to lead Jesus <clears throat> to deliver an entire, an entire sermon on the unpardonable sin. That blasphemy really is against the Holy Spirit. How is it possible that somebody could witness the compassion of Jesus Christ towards those two blind men, towards this man that was possessed with a demon, Pat, uh, the, the compassion Jesus showed towards the daughter who was dead, the compassion that Jesus showed towards the woman with the issue of blood. How is it possible that someone could be so wicked to say that was done in the power of Satan. There's not an ounce of evil. There's not an ounce of wickedness. And there's not a spot of sin in Jesus Christ. And yet, you see what the wicked, do, what the wicked people do? They ascribe the works. They commit blasphemy against the Holy Spirit. Throughout the ministry of Jesus, and this is what we're going to learn as we get further along here in Matthew, and we're going to even begin, uh, not next week, but probably the following week, Jesus is going to begin to call those 12 disciples closer to him. Jesus is going to teach a theme that's going to be, is going to be witnessed here throughout the remainder of, of, of Matthew's gospel. It's this principle of there is really no neutrality with God. You can't be neutral. You are either with him or you're against him. There is no, I can be on both sides of this. There is no neutrality with God. This is just as true today. We ask questions like, where do you stand on Christ? Or what do you think of Christ? Who is Christ to you? You can't be neutral on this, folks. You can't just say, well, you know, there's some good things about Jesus. There's some good things about God. You are either with him or you're against him. This idea that's permeating Christianity that just simply says, you know, I don't really have to take a stand for anything. I can just kind of play both sides. That's not what Jesus was teaching. He was teaching that there is no two sides. You're either with me or you're against me. You might tell yourself tonight, you may actually say, well, I'm not really sure. I'm not really sure how I feel about Jesus. By Jesus' own words, which we'll learn, he would say, you're in direct opposition. You're either with me or you're against me. What's going to start happening, and we know this because we, we know our Bibles, but this momentum of the hatred and the venom towards Christ is only going to get worse. See, you would think <clears throat> that the more miracles he did, the more response would be, we're with Christ. The opposite happens. The more Jesus heals, the more the accusations of blasphemy are thrown at him. Really, the Gospel of Matthew and, and even Mark, Luke, and John, to some extent, 
really show us that Jesus is sending this message loud and clear. You can't be neutral towards the things concerning me. Now, folks, the assumption is on a Wednesday night, none of us are neutral. The assumption always is if, if we make our way to a church gathering place on Wednesday night, certainly we, we are all in. We're all for Christ. And I would challenge us all to think, is that really the case? Are we truly all for Jesus Christ? Because that's the message that Jesus is teaching, and that's the message he will continue to teach uh, throughout this gospel. Next week, we'll look at some of the more, most familiar uh, words that Matthew ever wrote concerning Jesus and looking at the fields and looking at the people. And we see that most marvelous phrase <clears throat> in verse 36 where it says, He was moved with compassion. So next week, we'll deal with the last few verses of this chapter. But I hope tonight we'll be challenged by stopping and thinking about exactly who Jesus Christ is and where do we stand. Let's conclude our time this evening by...